God, we thank you that, that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We thank you that, that there's freedom in this place because you are in this place. And there's freedom in my life because you are in my life. And when you found me and when you saved me and I surrendered to irresistible grace when I was 16 years old, my life was never the same. And it, you've taken me on many, many amazing adventures and you've allowed me to have extremely amazing highs and, and been with me through very, very low lows. And I thank you that along the way, uh, you taught me things and you teach me things today and that you're the God who walks with me and, and isn't through with me. And so I thank you that, that, that you aren't through with any of us. As long as there's breath in our lungs, you still have a purpose for us. And God, I pray that today you maybe give us just the next step in that purpose. And as we, as we continue on in this series, learning how to navigate through difficult things in life, that, that you'd show us how we need to deal, how you called us to deal with the subject of failure. We pray you would, uh, we don't pray that you would speak to us today because we know you are always wanting to speak to us, but we pray more that you would open our hearts, uh, open our ears to what you have to say so that we could hear wonderful things. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do you guys hear that? It's the sound of no alarms going off. Isn't it great? Right? For those of you who don't get the joke, you should have been at church last Sunday. No, um, for those of you who weren't here, last Sunday, about five minutes into my sermon series talking about how to deal, we uh, had to deal with an alarm going off somewhere above us in the building. At first, maybe we thought that it was a fire alarm and the Holy Spirit was dismissing church early, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, but we learned how to deal with alarms going off and, and continued on. Um, I was telling, uh, I think it was Rachel this morning, I'm probably going to have to re-preach that sermon because sometimes pastors get distracted and I definitely did not bring my A game. But today, we are going to talk about how to deal with annoying noises. So, no, I'm kidding. Today, we are talking about the next subject in our series talk of learning how to navigate the hard things in life. Last week, we attempted to talk about how to deal with dry seasons in your life and how through different portions of our life, we go through highs and lows, and then we feel dry spiritually and what the Bible has to say about that. But today, we're talking about this, how to deal with failure. You know, failure is, is, is a very interesting thing. If you were to try to think of one thing that unites all of humanity, the common denominator, the common ground, right, if you could try to think if there's some experience that all of humanity can share, I would make and propose a very hard argument to be that failure is that thing. Failure is something that all of us experience. There's not one person in this world who is immune, totally immune, to failure. It doesn't discriminate by wealth, status, education, or even influence. And it can take many forms, can it? There's vocational failures. You thought of a really great idea for a business on paper, but it just didn't work in real life. There's relational failures, right? There's physical failures, and there's spiritual failures. And when any of these happen in your life, not only can you feel like you failed, but there's the temptation to feel like you yourself are a failure. And then... What I hope that you can see by the end of the day that there's a difference between failing and being a failure. 
okay? And it's honestly all about how you perceive it to be. But failing is the common denominator between all of humanity. Right now I'm teaching my, 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 my oldest son how to ride a bike and he gets incredibly frustrated when he doesn't figure things out on the first try. He's a brilliant kid. All right? it's, it, you know how exhausting it is to try to stay ahead of a kid who's already smarter than you? Like, it's just exhausting, folks, right? But he gets so incredibly frustrated when he can't figure things out on the first try. And I remember kind of the inspiration for this series today, for this sermon today, was when I was helping him. We were running back and forth with a bike uh, in the little courtyard of our state. And, and he just kept saying, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. I said, son, let me tell you a secret. I said, there is not one person in this world who ever hopped on a bike and figured it out on their first try. We live close to, to a bike trail in Mount Zahn and, and along the promenade there. And so we see people on their bikes all the time. I said, do you see all those people riding those Gobi bikes? Do you see all the people on the Ofo bikes or whatever the newest bike share bike is called? He said, do you see all those people? At some point, I can guarantee you every single one of them fell off of their bicycle. Failure is that common denominator that we all can share as people. It's, it's something that really ties us all together. And the Bible speaks of this explicitly, right? The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned, for all have failed. That's what sin is. Sin is failing to live up to what God wants you to do or who God wants you to be. Another way to say it is sin is choosing what you want instead of what God wants, right? And the Bible's very clear. There's, there's not a lot of wiggle room or interpretive uh, margin in this, is there? The Bible says everyone has sinned or failed. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standards. But if that's the case, if all of us have failed, why is it that some people in this life seem to succeed a whole lot more than other people do? You know what I mean? Have you ever, does anybody have that one friend that just everything comes up roses for them? You know what I'm talking about? Does anybody have, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just know the luckiest person in the world. But we all, it seems to have that one friend that they didn't study for the, they forgot the exam, they forgot to study for that exam in school, but they still aced it, right? They overslept their job interview, but they still got the job anyways. And, and it's like, you, you look at their spouse. I, the, I lived with three other guys in college, right, for three, for three and, and a few years after. Uh, I had really, really close friends as roommates. I lucked out and got to enjoy my roommates. We were all messy together. I think that was the thing, right? But I have to say, of the three guys that I lived with, all of us punched way above our weight when we got married, okay? We all did a whole lot better than we deserved. And we all remind each other of that all the time. But there's, there's, there's certain people in our life that it just seems that, that succeed a whole lot more than other people. And I, I, if, if, we all are fa- if we've all failed, if we've all fallen short, what is it? About, is it about that certain segment of people who just seem to exude success over those who just can't seem to catch a break? Does anybody know that, friend? They just try and try and try and try and nothing ever seems to come up their way, right? Maybe you're like, I know that friend, that friend is me, right? But there's a, there, I think there's one thing that separates the people in this world that we see as successful 
as opposed to the people who, who just, it doesn't seem to work out. And it's this. Your response to failure will determine your level of success and accomplishment in life. How you respond to a failure in life will ultimately set the course for whether or not your life is deemed a success or not. And here's the great thing, folks. I want, I want to get this out of the way before we jump right into this, okay? I'm not going to define the word success for you today, okay? Only God knows and has defined what success means in your life. I will tell you this, for me, uh, the words of an old Kiwi pastor, he told me this about a year ago. He said, you know how I define success, Brad? I said, what's that? He said, success for me is answering the question, am I doing the last thing God asked me to do? And if the answer is yes, then you're a success. If you can say, am I doing the last thing that God asked me to do? And respond to that with yes, then that's what success is. That's God's measure of, that's his metric, okay? That's his analytic for how to measure up success. But it's ultimately how we respond to failure that determines that. And so the first truth I want you to understand today, if we're all at some point fallen short, if we've all failed, I want you to understand this. And this is a truth that I think maybe 90% of the world doesn't understand. So you're going to be in the top 10% of humanity when you walk out the doors today, okay? Congratulations, all right? It's this. This truth, this principle. Failing does not make you a failure. Too often we tend to wrap up our identity and wrap up our sense of who we are around our accomplishments, our achievements, our, our business negotiating skills, our bank account, whatever it is that we decide what our level of success is. And so if, that, if your identity is wrapped up and who you are as a person is based on whether or not the business you started succeeds or fails, if it fails like statistics say, most new businesses will, you will feel like a failure. If your identity is wrapped up in your academic performance, if your identity is wrapped up in how much money is in, in, in your MPF account or how well your kids behave at dinner or how nice your car is, you are doomed to at some point in your life see yourself as a failure. Because God has told us explicitly in his word that circumstances do not determine our identity. That job titles, the letters behind the comma in your name, on your name card, your achievements in life, how well your kids do, what schools they go to, don't determine your identity. Because if we are to place our hope in things and circumstances in this world, we will consistently be disappointed and feel like a failure. And that's, let me tell you this, that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. The Bible says that he has come to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And it's not even because he hates you that much. Did you know that? 
Satan doesn't really care about you at all. He doesn't hate you. What Satan is trying to do, he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy what God values most because he knows if he can hurt what God values the most, that will hurt God the most. And so if he's trying to kill, steal, and destroy from you, on the flip side of that coin, that means that you must be what God values most. And folks, that's where you can find your identity. That's where you can rest. That's where you can, you can set that, that foundation of building your life on. But failing doesn't make you a failure. You know what failing does? It just makes you relatable, right? It makes you relatable. Like, I can't relate to the valedictorian of my class academically, I don't know what that's like. I operated under the um, academic philosophy of C's get degrees, all right? And my grade point average absolutely proved that I, I lived that out. And so being able to, to identify academically with someone who had a, somehow they got an above perfect grade point average in high school. I don't know how you do that, by the way. But anyways, they, they scored an above perfect grade point average. I, I couldn't relate to them academically. But when we fail, which we all do, it allows us to have a relatability to people that God has placed in our life for a purpose. James says it this way. James chapter 3, verse 2. James says, Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. You see, the people in this life that seem to just bounce back from failures understand that, that this, fa this momentary little failure doesn't change who I am as a person. If anything, it makes us understand the next point maybe a little bit even better. And then the next point is this, that there are lessons in the losses. There are lessons in the losses. See, in God's economy, there's no such thing as failure, only opportunities for growth. Right? Now, I'm obviously not talking about the failure of sin in that point. Okay, please don't take what I'm saying out of context. But, but what the point is this is that oftentimes when we fail, when we trip, when we fall, whenever we lose our balance on our bicycle and fall off, there's a lesson that we can learn so that we can improve for the future. The legend goes, the story goes, I can't back this up with fact, but boy, I really hope it's true because it makes an amazing story, Right? And like most storytellers, I try not to let the facts get in the way of a good story, okay? But the story goes that Thomas Edison took almost 1,000 tries and failures before he invented the light bulb. It meant Thomas Edison put together little pieces of glass, little different pieces of metal filament, wrapped it inside, it's different types of gas that I don't even understand about, and, and flipped on a switch and pop or nothing over a thousand times. 
And somebody asked him, what does it feel like to, how does it feel to fail a thousand times before you finally invented this thing? He said, I didn't fail. I invented the light bulb on the first try. It just took a thousand steps to get there. Right? But there are every single time a light bulb didn't light, time after time after time after time after time after time, times a thousand, he learned something. He learned something. I want to read you a quote by an athlete, professional basketball player. For those of you who, um, who follow the NBA, you probably know this quote or you may know who he is after. But the quote is this. He says in an interview, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. And that quote by arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, speaks to me tremendously. Because the people who ultimately are seen as a success understand this particular concept, this truth that there are lessons in our losses. We may not understand them today. We may not understand why that business failed. We may not understand why that career move didn't work out the way we thought. But God wants to use it to produce something in you everlasting and good. It wasn't, I don't think it was God's plan for him to get cancer. But how you respond to that and the lessons you learn from that, that, that hurt will change who you are. The great thing is we don't ever have to try to guess at this, right? We, we worship a God, we serve a God who intimately wants to walk through us, not through us, walk with us through our failures. I think of the story in Joshua chapter 7, right? The book of Joshua is about, it's an amazing, amazing story. If you ever want to learn about God's view of leadership, study the life of Moses and the transition of leadership to Joshua. It's an amazing, amazing thing when you look at it through those lenses. But the story of Joshua goes like this. God had, had kind of placed on Joshua the job of reclaiming the promised land that he had promised Abraham generations and generations ago. And while the nation of... I'm giving you Old Testament survey in about 45 seconds. Get ready, okay? While the nation of Israel were slaves in Egypt and their promised land was vacated because they weren't there... Squatters moved in and, and they took over the land. Well, after God sent Moses, stuck his staff in the Red Sea, splits open, cross across, swallows up the nation of, Israel, of Egypt and tells them to wander through the desert for a few years because they messed up. And then God, Moses transitions the leadership of Israel to, J, to Joshua and says, go reclaim the land I promised for you. That's what we start to see. Joshua starts to take the army of God and reclaim the land that God had promised for them and kick out the squatters of their, their promised land. And so we know the story of the walls of Jericho, 
right? God calls, this, God calls the nation of Israel to march around Jericho and perhaps the weirdest, one of the weirdest military tactics of all time and then bring a brass band, play some music, and all of a sudden the walls fall down and Jericho is sacked, right? Well, the very next battle is this little bitty suburb of, of Jericho called Ai, where it should be just an absolute cakewalk, easy peasy, Japanesey type of battle for the, the nation of Israel, but they get absolutely obliterated. And so what does Joshua do? If you look in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua's first response to that major cataclysmic failure was prayer. He immediately got on his face. And he fell before God and he cried out to him in prayer. And in doing so, God, Joshua invited God into the midst of his failure. And God wants you to invite him into that failure because it's in that middle of failure that God wants to reveal to you what the lesson is. It wasn't God's plan for AI to, to, to be an absolute slaughter for his people, but he used it to teach Joshua and his people an utter dependency upon him. Right? When we invite God into your failures, it's in those, those moments that he can teach you the lessons in that. And again, you may, not, you may not see the lesson in that failure, in that moment, but I can guarantee you nothing that you go through with God is ever wasted. There's no failure that you have experienced in this world that, that God does not want to use to transform you into the image of his son. There are lessons in the losses. And when you can start to see that, and when you can start to really put feet to that principle, it starts to change how you see Romans 8.28, doesn't it? Romans 8.28 starts to make more sense when it says that we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. All things, your highs and your lows, God wants to use to produce something good in you. If we invite God into our failure, that's when we can start to see the lessons. There's another type of failure. A lot of the times we, we consider the failures in our life are mistakes, right? We consider a, a lot of the failures we have, the, the, the things that we just, we messed up on. But oftentimes there's, there's the, the, the failure to act, Right? A lot of times, I think, for, I think if, if all of us were, were a little bit authentic, a little bit honest in this place today, even Liam, um, oh, you too, okay, all right, but if we were to be honest, we would say, you know what, there is a dream that God has placed in me, and it's a crazy dream, and it's to do this, and I don't know how in the world it's going to work. And it doesn't make any sense. And it keeps me up at night, but it scares me to death at the same time. That dream, oftentimes, 
I hate, to t- I hate to break it to you, is oftentimes your destiny. That dream, that, that scary image of what the future could be and how you don't know how, you, you can see what God wants you to do, but you have no idea how to get there, is oftentimes your destiny in life. And, and God is waiting for you to step out and take a risk and to follow him in that. And it could make no sense at all. It could be going back to school and get that degree that you, you always wanted to but never really had the time for. It could be a complete change of careers or addresses. It could be moving halfway around the world to plant a church. Whatever it is, that, that dream that God has placed in you is, is, is something that you absolutely must risk everything for because that's your destiny and it is I, I'm not going to say it's not going to be scary absolutely it is but the people in this life who, who, we, who the world admires as, as success stories most of the time were the people who took the biggest risk we even look in scripture, right? We even look at Father Abraham, who had many sons, and I am one of them, and so were you, right? Abraham literally risked everything to become Father Abraham. He had a life of comfort. He had land. He had security. He had a stable life. He had livestock, which in biblical Israel time, Pretty great life to live. But God said, Abram, I want you to give all that up. I want you to follow me. And he did. He left. He left. And scripture says he had no idea where he was even going when he left all that security and safety behind. But as he took those steps, and we talked a few weeks ago about how faith is an active implication. It's not passive and sits back and lets God take care of everything for you. It is jumping off the cliff because God has called me to jump and I expect him to catch me. It's an active verb. It denotes motion. And because Abram left, that was considered righteousness and faith. And so often I I meet people in life who've told me, you know what, I wish if I could do it all over again, I'd do it this way. And they feel like because they never took that risk, they failed. But the fear of failing kept them, on, kept them from moving. And the fear of failure is an interesting thing, isn't it? It's, it's a thing, it has a power to paralyze you if you're not careful. And then all of a sudden, 30 years have gone by and you feel like I'm just not in a place where I can do that anymore. The fear of failure, if you don't conquer it, if you don't starve it, will grow and manifest in your life. And it'll solidify and, and, and it'll be, it only gets harder once you allow that, root, that, that fear of failure to take root. It only gets harder. You see, I think what, oftentimes what we're looking for in Jesus is something that we're not always going to find, we're not going to find on this side of heaven. You see, there is security in Christ. But Jesus never promised us safety on this side of heaven. 
You know, we did an entire teaching series through the, the Sermon on the Mount. We called it the kingdom. And oftentimes, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of risk. A lot of times, the kingdom of God can also be known as the kingdom of risk. And there is security in Christ. You can be secure and firm in your calling in Christ, but that doesn't always guarantee safety, right? In fact, Jesus promised us kind of almost the opposite, didn't he? He said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But be secure in the fact that I've overcome the world. There's security in Christ, but oftentimes from the, from the perspective of the world, there's not a lot of safety. We live in a world today where there have been more martyrs in recorded modern history than there ever were in the previous time lapse of humanity. There are more people who are being executed and persecuted for their faith in Christ in today's world than there have been in most of recorded history combined. That's not safe, is it? I mean, if you're looking for safety, it doesn't sound like Jesus is the one that you should be following, right? But too often we try to look for things that, that will only be found for us when we step through the doors of eternity. That is where your safety is, folks. But too often we, we lose that per, eternal perspective. And if you start to look at life through an eternal perspective, failures start to change a little bit too. Failures just kind of start to become momentary setbacks, right? And how many of us don't have a setback? If you've never had a setback, you've obviously never had to go in person to HSBC before, right? You never had to go to the bank. <laughs> because, let's face it, I've never had to go to the bank for a good reason here, right? It's always been because something's messed up and I'm, I've, I will never have the right form that they need even though that's the instructions on their website. They'll make me go get another one, right? The fact is, it, there's always a setback in life. So what I want to challenge you to do today is to stop viewing the failures in your life as a failure and start to see it as a setback. Because we know that setbacks set the table for a comeback, right? Boy, if this is a black church, you guys would be amening me all day. That's good preaching, okay? All right? Let me say it again in case you missed it. A setback is a setup for a comeback, all right? You can write that down, okay? You can tweet that all week long, folks. You can tattoo that on your forearm, okay? But no, so no, whenever things just don't work out the way you thought they would, if you risked it all, you started that business, and it just didn't work, that's just a setback. I mean, if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you know how many glorious failures this church has had, right? And that's fine. Because I would much rather us be known as a church that we're willing to at least try for the sake of people than be stuck in the status quo of this is how things are normally done. We've had some amazing flops in our church. I have royally screwed things up as a pastor before. And if I'm still here in 20 years, I'll still say the same thing. Because I refuse to say at the end of my life, I wish we had tried that. 
I wish we tried that. And that brings us up to the last major principle is this. Scars are better than regrets. Scars are better than regrets. And what I mean by that is I'd much rather us as a church to have a few scratches on us because we tried something and fell down than 25 years from now say, you know what? I really thought that this could have worked, but you know, we just, we just never tried it. So what if we put that on a personal level? And you say, you know what? I thought this was a great idea for a business. I thought that this book would be a bestseller. And it just didn't work. But at least I tried. At least I tried. Now, was it God's plan for you to write a book that nobody bought? Was it, was it God's plan for you to, to, to start a business that, that went under? I don't know. But I know that I'm proud of you for trying. And that's just a setback. I think scars tell much better stories than regrets do. And maybe it was a mistake for you to do it. And maybe you fell down. But there's, a, there, there's, Scripture talks about, about sin a lot. It talks about grace even more. But there's two types of sins in this world. Right? There's the sins of commission. The things that, that you know God doesn't want you to do, but you do anyways. Right? Oh, yeah. But there's, there's, there's things that God tells you to do. Or maybe he says, don't do that. Don't see this person. Don't go to that website. Don't, don't invest in that company. And you do it anyways. That's doing what you want instead of what God wants. That's a sin. It's a sin of commission. And those are the sins in life that leave scars, right? But there's another sin that the Bible talks about. It's called the sins of omission. Those are the things that God has asked you to do and for a number of different reasons you didn't do it. I had one of those this week. My wife and I were on a date and as many couples who have two young children do when they go on a date, we went to the grocery store. Right? Most of our dates end up at a grocery store unfortunately at this season in life. Um, but while we were at Marketplace, um, we were, my wife was trying to find pasta and I got bored with that. So I just started wandering around with the cart and I came across a man and, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't know how to say it, but I just, I, as I walked past him, I felt the Lord say, I want you to go back and I want you to tell that man, I love him and I'm for him. It makes no sense, does it? No sense at all. And sometimes, and, and I, and there's just period, different times in my life where, where that happens to me. I think I've told you this story before about how I was in Choiwa one time having breakfast and I felt the Lord telling me to go up to this one particular girl and tell her the exact same thing. And I did and she spoke not one word of English and looked at me like I was the weirdest man in the entire world and why would I be trying to hit on her during breakfast time? Right? But he called me to do it and I did it. 
But if I can tell you, if, I'm, if I could be completely honest with you, for every one girl at Chihuahua that I do that to, or one guy walking down the beach in North Carolina 20 years ago, I said that to, and he said, you know what? Thank you for that. I, I'll take that. There's about five or six other people that sometimes God says, hey, I want you to walk up to this person and say, there's a God who exists and he loves you and he's for you. And I say, come on, man, that's crazy. I'm just at the grocery store. Can we just buy our apricot jam and get out of here, right? And I didn't do it. And I regret it. Or there's the story of Wade. The... I'm sure I've told you this before, but I am the proud owner and have earned a Bachelor of Science in Education in recreation, okay? It's an actual degree. We get it at an accredited university, right? I didn't just download a piece of paper online, okay? But part of my degree requirements were to spend an entire summer doing a full-time internship in uh, a recreation agency. That's what we call ourselves to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. In a recreation agency connected with the cluster that we had chosen to place an emphasis on as an undergrad. My emphasis was on community sports. So the summer after I walked in commencement at the University of Arkansas, I spent the next 12 weeks as an intern for the City of Fayetteville, Arkansas Parks and Recreation Division. And what an intern does at a Parks and Recreation Agency is they go to the adult softball leagues and wait for all the games to be finished and turn off the lights, right? It's a very glamorous job filled with lots of Gatorade and dust and late nights, right? But there was a... uh, so. Being the person I am, I can't just sit on the bleachers all day and not talk to people, right? I think you guys probably know what else to know. I, I tend to like to have conversations with people and be relational. And so I started to, to talk with the people who I'd see there more than anybody else, and those were the umpires, right? The guys that were there every night refereeing the games. And so in between games, I'd have a chance and I'd chat with them, and I realized that God had brought me in this internship for a purpose, and there was to minister to these umpires. And I got to pray with some of these guys. I got to share God's truth with them. But there was a guy named Wade who was uh, very, I should say Wade was very colorful, all right? Had very colorful language, had very colorful thoughts, had very colorful relationships with women. That's all I'm, and, tell, and colorful descriptions, but I'm just leaving it at that. But Wade... And I, for whatever reason, saw each other almost every night. And so I got to become friends with Wade. And there was one night that Wade's game finished before everybody else's. And he said, hey, man, I'd much rather rent, rent, rent you with you than go home to my rent, 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 rent wife and my rent, rent, rent kids. And I said, well, cool, let's chat, right? <laughs> so... So as we're talking, and Wade knew that I was a Christian, at the time I was also still a, a youth pastor, and he, he asked me a few questions about God earlier in the season. He knew who I was and what I believed and what I stood for. And, and um, we were just chatting, and, 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 and during a conversation, I, I felt the need, the Spirit of God, I think, in me, saying, I want you to tell Wade about my son. I want you to tell Wade about grace. I want you to tell Wade how much I love him, how much I want to redeem his life, give him hope. 
And, and I didn't. I came up with the excuse of, well, God, we're talking in between a fence. Like, he's on the field. I'm sitting here in the stands. Like, what if, what if the game gets over and I have to turn off the lights and I don't, you know, we, there's always an excuse, right? We're very good at coming up with excuses as people. But anyways, long story short, I didn't share the gospel with Wade that night. It was at the end of the summer and where we're at, there's actually four seasons. And so there's a season called winter where you need a coat for more than two or three days and it gets cold and nobody wants to be outside in the cold so we wouldn't have adult softball games in the winter. And so... I wasn't going to see Wade again until the next spring, whenever the new season started. And so, during the winter, I, I, I took a full-time job with this agency. They, I guess I fooled them and, thought I was, they, and made them think I was a good employee. They hired me on full-time as a recreation programs manager, uh, and that kind of helped me and my family get established. But, um, so, during the middle of winter, um, <laughs> we got a little... We got a little situation here. We'll give it a second. All right. It's very, very traumatic. All right. Uh, during the middle of winter, my boss, who did the exact same job and the exact same internship I did when he graduated from the University of Arkansas, pulled me into his office and he said, Brad, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, hey, what's up? His name's David Wright. We called him DW, right? Very creative nickname. Um, I said, what's up, DW? He said, well... Um, I just got off the phone with Wade's wife, and um, Wade was scheduled for a routine surgery for, uh, for a gallbladder, right? And um, he said, long story short, Wade's not going to make it. And... Um, Twelve years later, I, I still have that regret. I still have that regret that I didn't make the most of that opportunity that night. And, and, I, and if I can, I can tell you anything. A scar may leave a mark today, but a regret sticks with you. So scars are better than regrets. Scars are much better than regrets. Proverbs says it this way. The godly may trip up, may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. The Dutton Standard Translation, that's a joke, obviously, says it this way. Fall seven times, stand up eight. The kingdom of God is worth worth risking everything for. And I can't promise you that you always land on your feet. I can't promise you that you're not going to walk away from this world without scars. But I can promise you this. It is very, very, very difficult to beat the man that never gives up. 
It's very, very, very difficult to defeat someone who won't give up. And sure, you may fall down. You may get wounded. You may get beat up. You may get ridiculed. It may hurt for a little bit. But if you stand up that eighth time, always be something of eternal value in there. And I know there, uh, maybe, maybe having an honest pastor is uncomfortable at times. Well, I'll tell you, in, in my darkest days as pastor of this church, I wasn't sure if we'd make it. I just kept thinking, God, you, why, have I wasted so many years? Have I wasted, did I just get it wrong? Did I just have indigestion and thought it was the Holy Spirit, right? Terrible joke, I know. Okay, but, uh-oh, there we go. Um, but, this proverb and this <laughs> loose translation has given me so much strength over the past six and a half years of us living here. And you know, as well as I do from living here, some days you beat Hong Kong, and some days Hong Kong beats you. But if you stay down, you're beat. But if you stand back up, dust yourself off, Learn from the loss. Tell people the stories of your scars. And know that failing doesn't make you a failure. In the eyes of God and in the world around you, you're a success. Let's pray.